and welcome to Spotlight on your Griffith College alumni podcast. We are delighted to welcome Katie Morris, who studied a BA in Journalism, graduating in 2014, and a BA Honours in Journalism and Visual Media, graduating in 2015. Today's podcast will shine a spotlight on Katie's academic and career achievements. Katie has been working as an ecumenical accompanier for an ecumenical accompaniment program in Palestine and Israel, EAPPI. So, welcome Katie. Um, shall we kick off with your recent work? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, so, first things first, uh, for, for the audience and for myself, what exactly uh, were you doing out in Palestine? Um, well, I was stationed in Jerusalem for three months and I was kind of a mix between human rights monitor and a social care worker. So we could be doing anything from monitoring the checkpoints to make sure that Palestinians are allowed cross. And if they aren't, it's for a legitimate reason. We could be attending housing demolitions and taking note of how many people were affected, if they had been given a demolition order on time, um, different things like that. Or we could just be going to vulnerable communities and people that feel a bit marginalised and going and having a cup of tea and a chat. And a lot of times that made the world a difference to them. Okay, wow. So very broad role. Then yeah, very, very. And how did you get involved with... Uh... With, with that sort of line of work after you graduated? Um, well, I studied here and we did a lot of politics modules. Um, and from there, I had the opportunity to go to the West Bank in 2016 to see for myself what was going on. And I thought I'd just go and I'd leave it when I came back and I'd probably never go again. Then I had the opportunity to go the next year. So I went on the same trip, but I also included a trip to Israel just so I wasn't being biased and I could see that side of it as well. Hmm. And then the person that organized those trips sent me an application form for EAPPI. So I applied for that and then it kind of just went for there. Wow, okay. So are there, are there lots of people that go and, and, uh, and you know, work in Palestine uh, or, or Israel for EAPPI? Um, there are about 20 to 25 people per term. It works in three-month terms. You do your training and then you go over. Um, the visa only allows you to stay for three months, so that's why there's that kind of time limit on it. But there are up to 25 people, and they come from all over Europe, um, Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand, South America as well. So you get quite a varied bunch of people. And I think the youngest we had on this trip was 24, and the oldest was 74. So wow. there's a huge age gap, all different genders, very international. Um, it's just really great what they do over there. And you mentioned you had some, some training, so how in-depth is the training that you, you get to go on? Um, once you're selected through the interview process, you go over and you do two weeks residential training. But before that, they send you this huge information pack, so there's lots of background reading to do. So you know the context of the conflict before you go over. Mm. And then when you go for the residential training, you're there for a week in London with lectures and um, people from Palestine come over, people from Israel come over. You get a bit of a background in human rights law and then there's also another week that takes place in Birmingham and that's um, kind of team bonding and teamwork and role play. Mm. So you are kind of equipped for situations that may arise. Very interesting. And you know, a, a standout point for me would be, is it dangerous when you're over there? Not really. There's always a risk associated with an active conflict zone, but we only operate during the daylight hours and you're, you have your core team. And at any one time, you can't be alone. You have to be out with at least one other member of your team. Mm -hmm. And then there is always the rule of if one person in the team doesn't feel safe in a situation, then you all leave. So it's, it works kind of on your teamwork. 
mm-hmm. kind of basis like that and you're not left feeling in danger or anything like that. There are certain times at a protest where it's hard to tell what might happen and things could change very, very fast. Mm-hmm. But we're there to monitor the protests, not to be involved. So we would always be standing back mm-hmm. or to the sides and documenting what's going on. So we're kind of out of the danger zone in that kind of way. And you say you've obviously been documenting what's been going on out there. Where does that kind of information feed back into? Um, so anytime we go to an incident or we might just happen to be walking down the street and see something happen, mm. we would take out our phones, take pictures and videos. You'd talk to witnesses that were around or family members that might be affected. Or someone might say, that person was there, you should go talk to them and you could get the documentation from them. <laughs> and then we go back to our house where we were staying and we have a database and we log everything that happened on the database of that incident and then those incident reports go out to hundreds of NGOs operating on the ground and internationally so it could be Amnesty, uh, Beth Salem which is an Israeli right, uh, human rights organization, um, the Red Cross concern and that's where they all get their data where they could say for example 162 housing demolitions happened in Jerusalem. We would have the data to account for some of those so it all feeds into a big pool of the human rights abuses that are happening over there. Right, okay, so um, obviously on that on the ground is, is really important work that mm. you need to feed back in so that these uh, charities can go and help uh, in, in the region, which is you know, very impressive work. So could you maybe give us a, a quick overview of what a day would look like while you're out there? A day in Jerusalem? It's very hard to plan for. Um, on a Sunday evening, we would make our plan for the week and we would slot in the things that we need to do. For example, there is a, a certain school in the old city of Jerusalem and UNICEF have funded EAPPI to do a minimum of three school runs and that's walking through the old city at the times when the students go to school to make sure that they're getting there okay, that they're not being harassed by soldiers and that there isn't a danger there. Um, so we have to fit that into our timetable three times a week. But there's also certain things like protests where we would monitor. but. Demolitions is one of the major issues that is affecting East Jerusalem at the moment. So if there is a demolition, we would get an alert and we'd have to drop whatever we're doing and get in a car and get there as soon as possible. On one day in particular, we had four alerts and we could only get to three of them. So that means we have to catch up the next day. Mm. So it is very um, kind of firefighting. You're reacting to what's happening on the ground. (laughs) Um, But for example, on... Sunday we would go to Kalandia checkpoint we would be monitoring to see if Palestinians are being allowed in and if they aren't it's for legitimate reason but what we're monitoring there is access to uh, land and livelihood because Sunday is Monday over there that's Mm -hmm. the first day of the week Um, and a lot of Palestinians would cross from behind the wall into Jerusalem or Israel proper if they have jobs there and they could stay for a week so if they're not allowed pass then that's like a really financial problem for them and their family. Mm. Um, just different things like that. Very interesting, very interesting work. And you said that when you were studying here uh, and, and at UCD, you've you've kind of had inspiration to go into this line of work. Mm. Um, is there anything that sticks out in your, your mind? Is there is a point where you thought, that's, that's exactly why I want to go uh, and work in, in what I would call the charity or aid sector? Yeah, I think it was kind of a gradual calling, should you say. Um, For the first year here, we did very broad subjects. Mm. Most of them were kind of journalism based. 
And then in second year, we got into more kind of issues affecting contemporary Irish society and then issues affecting what's happening in the world as well. So we would have looked at like the rise of the BRIC countries. And then in third and fourth year, we would have started looking at what's happening in the Middle East. And I just found that absolutely captivating. And there were certain lecturers like uh, Barry Finnegan, uh, Maurice Coakley, Robbie and Ryan. Hmm. And they would have been very motivational and really opened my eyes a lot to what was going on. So from here, I decided that I wanted to study that a bit more. And then my time that I spent in the Middle East kind of spread that on more and more. Hmm. And we were chatting before the podcast and you'd uh, you'd mentioned that you've been giving talks since you've come back to mm. Ireland. Um, would you like to kind of give us a little overview of the kind of things you talk about when you when you address groups? Yeah, so the best way to tell the story of what is happening in the occupation is to show how it affects one person or a family or a town. So the two talks that I've done, I did one in London and I focused on the issue of child detention and arrest in a, just a town in East Jerusalem where there has been over 700 residents arrested since last June and a third of them are children and that's to do with um, a lot of unease that's happening in the town and a lot of harassment by the Israeli police that's happening there and then another issue that I talked about just last night with the Irish Country Women's Association would be issues affecting one particular family in the old city they're having their house is kind of sorry uh, Israeli Secret Service moved in just right next door to them and they're getting a lot of harassment and we think it's because they have this amazing rooftop which would make a really good vantage point so we think that they're gradually trying to be encouraged to leave or to find somewhere else to live so that that house could be taken over Mm. so the father and sons have been arrested multiple times Uh, the soldiers have raided the house in the middle of the night and um, not let the women dress and different things like that so there's a whole host of abuses going on and just from capturing one story you can really tell a lot about the occupation and kind of broadcast the messages of what's happening really. Mm. I, I could see how that, that story would definitely resonate with, with the mm. group. And, and when you're addressing these different groups, how does uh, how do they feed back after you, you've spoken about, you know, obviously people in the region and the kind of eyewitness that you've had mm. out there? What's the kind of reaction? Well, at the end of the talk, we put a call to action. So that could be contacting your TDs or MEPs signing up for a mailing list, uh, following people on social media. And we also bring some literature for people to take away and read. Uh, we also open the floor to questions. Um, I think I was there for about an hour straight last night answering everyone's questions because they were so engaged with what I had to say. Wow. Um, and they also had different ideas of how how they could act. Uh, they were telling me what we could do instead of me telling them. So that was really good to hear back. Yeah, and obviously you can kind of see there that you're you've gone and done something that's that's had a great value in the Middle East, but then you're coming back and having an impact on people's lives over here that, mm. that are very very different. And um, you've also mentioned that you've been been lobbying uh, the government over here as well. Yes, I launched an email campaign. I think that was a week ago now. There was an incident in the town that I had been talking about, Alizuia. Uh, a nine-year-old boy had been shot in the eye after he'd come back from school. Uh, he just got off a bus and I think the soldier that did, or the, sorry, the police officer that had fired the gun said he was firing at the wall. 
that doesn't really make much sense, especially if you're trained in one of the best armies in the world. You wouldn't really mistake a child for a wall. Mm. Um, but what's happening there now is it's, it was already a very violent situation, and I can just see it deteriorating. Mm. So I, call, I emailed every TD and MEP in the country, uh, told them about what had happened, and then put some calls to action in. Like saying we need to back the settlements bill that had kind of stalled in the 32nd doll um, and we need to impose sanctions on Israel for these actions and publicly uh, denounce what has happened and um, just act for the Palestinian people a bit. I got some really great responses, uh, particularly from the Green Party in Sinn Féin. They were very, very responsive. Um, so hopefully something comes of that. It's very hard to be back and see these things happen. Mm-hmm. and not be there to do anything. So I just felt that that was the most that I could do while I was here. Yeah, and I suppose for a lot of people, um, the kind of the distance between Ireland and the Middle East and the fact that you don't see these, these things every day, mm. it doesn't become an, an issue that's relevant all the time for you. Yeah. Um, so where would you see your career moving next then? Um, I think I would love to work in communications, mm-hmm. uh, continue what I've learned during my degrees and my time here and put that to use in an NGO. Um, so somewhere like the Red Cross or Concern, mm-hmm. it's where I have my eyes on at the moment. If anyone's listening. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've got to turn this back to, to Griffith for, for one second. What, what, made you, um, what made you choose to come and do the, the journalism degree here at, here at Griffith? Um, I had looked at a few different colleges and what I really wanted to do was at that time was a bit more creative digital media with a little bit of writing mm-hmm. and a little bit of investigative stuff further down the line. So I'd looked at a few colleges, but the modules for this one seemed most reflective of what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I applied and then I got in. And then I think after three months here, I was like, this is fantastic. I never want to leave. <laughs> yeah, I found kind of my niche. That's fab. That's always yeah. nice to hear. And um, what's kind of been your greatest achievement to date then, do you, do you think? Probably my work in Israel and mm. Palestine. Um, I really did enjoy that quite a bit. Okay, so that leads us to the quick fire questions, which signifies the kind of home straight for uh, all of our guests in the podcast. Uh, I asked the same three questions to all of our guests. Uh, the first one is the best piece of advice that you've ever received. Um, probably just to breathe and go a bit slower. Um, I do tend to get a lot of anxiety and get kind of get caught up in my head. So one trick that I do sometimes is tell myself, count to three and do the thing. Mm. And I count to two and then just like press send or something like that. <laughs> and it's uh, usually worked. So <laughs> quite handy. Good advice, very good mm. advice. And then the second question would be, uh, what advice would you give to a recent graduate entering the job market? Um, probably that internships are fine. Um, but maybe only do one because I think one is great for experience but then after that you've kind of paid your dues and you've done the groundwork and you should be looking to be paid after that I think Okay. a lot of employers tend to try to take advantage of recent graduates Mm. well you know internships are obviously a great way to to start Mm. uh, on your career ladder but yeah I would agree that you know you can you can do one and then move into into paid work from, yeah. from there. Or even paid internships are fine. Yeah. There are a few that would only pay your uh, transport or lunch money or something like that. <laughs> and then finally, uh, how would you describe Griffith College in three words? Fantastic, engaging, and friendly, I'd say. 
Fabulous. Um, I, I do love that last section because the the, the the things that people come out with uh, are all very, very different. And I'm hoping at the end to put together some sort of word kind of collage mm. uh, of all the different things that people have said in their three words about Griffith. So um, watch out for that. So that is the end of today's Spotlight On uh, podcast. I'd like to say a massive thank you to Katie uh, for coming on and sharing her story with us. Uh, Thanks, Vivian, for having me. It's been my pleasure. Uh, And thank you all to the listeners for for listening as well. Uh, And we'll catch you at the next podcast. So goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye. (laughs) 